Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast all about how to get better faster. I'm Ravi Gupta, and this is an exciting episode because we are coming to you from New York, where this is just sports week in New York. I saw the U.S. Open yesterday. I saw Alcaraz. Kids are back in school. Sports leagues are starting back up. The Bills play the Jets next Monday, where, you know, Bills are New York team playing our New Jersey, you know, team to the south. There's a lot of hype about Aaron Rodgers. I was just watching Hard Knocks and saw a whole lot of bad coaching and just could not help myself. Nate Hackett, by the way, our, you know, I'm a Bills fan for listeners, former offensive coordinator. He did some weird things and I and I just, it's been burning me up. I had to have on my co-host, Doug Lamov, who among many things is an expert on coaching. He wrote this wonderful book I have sitting beside me called The Coach's Guide to Teaching. And we figured this would be a great time, especially given how many people in the audience coach their kids teams or have their own coaches for sports that they're learning throughout their lives or want coaches or want to become coaches. I'll I'll stop there and say, I'm excited to have Doug on, but before I move on, make sure you leave a review. We haven't had reviews in a little while, so get on there. We don't ask for money for this podcast. We don't even bother you with advertising at the moment. The one thing you could do is get on there and leave a five-star review and say what you love about the show. And with that, Doug, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Ravi. On your own pod. I might dispute the word expert, but you know, I'll do my best. Do my best. Yeah. Well, this book is amazing. I was actually reading it by candlelight yesterday when I got back from the US Open because I was I went to a there was no coffee shops because I forgot it was Labor Day, which I normally I, I bring it out to this coffee shop down the street from me. So there's a wine bar open and I was literally with a candle just reading this thing because I hadn't read it in a second. That's exactly and, how I imagine people reading it when they yeah. write it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, one guy in the corner corner with Ulysses and me with, you know, the coaches got into to teaching. And there's a lot to di- dive into here, but I want to start with a scene. And this is a scene of you getting into a room with a bunch of, you know, rock star MLS coaches. And you decide that you're going to show a video of a student named Denarius, right? Teacher named Denarius. Yeah. Oh, teacher named Denarius. And you're having second thoughts about whether to actually show this. And as a reminder, you know, at this point, you are an expert on K-12 teaching, and you had run many workshops, I've been to them, where you show a scene like this, where it's a scene in the classroom. We say, well, you know, you basically push the audience, which is mostly teachers and principals like me. What do you see? So over to you. Like, what were you thinking at this moment and what happened? I was asking myself the same question, which is, what was I thinking? (laughs) So I got invited to do this workshop. Kudos to U.S. Soccer, by the way. They take the craft of coaching really seriously. And the argument that coaching is a form of teaching and so the things we know about teaching should apply in some way to coaching, that's, you know, that's something that's important to them. There are all sorts of licensing courses in the U.S. Soccer Federation. Interestingly, you could argue that the licensing qualification for a soccer coach is is higher than it is for a teacher. You know, they're like A, B, and C license. And (laughs) the A license is like a, you know, it's a multi-week thing. So I did a couple of those. They're fascinating. Like coaches are hired because they love the game. Often they were successful at the game. And they've been through the process of learning and have been successful themselves, but they've they've had very little, no one has ever really had conversations with them or rarely had conversations with them about how do you know that people are actually learning the things you're talking about? And how do you look for that? And how do you give feedback and things like that? So I did some workshops for US soccer for their license courses, you know, for like in the A license course. And they invited me to come to this pro license course, which is the license you get if you're an MLS coach or a USL coach or an NWSL coach. So this is a room full of, these are the biggest, at the time, the biggest names in U.S. soccer, the guys who like, I watched them play for the national team, admire these guys greatly. I was like, I'm just going to do what I do, a little workshop on teaching. 
I know I'll show them a math video. And so the guy, you know, like it's in a, it's in a like hotel conference room in Chicago and I'm sitting at the back, you know, I'm like third on the list of presentations for the day. And the guys ahead of it says, okay, here's Doug Lamov and he writes books about teaching. And I'm sitting at the back of the room as he's saying this and I'm like, this is the worst idea I've ever had, which is I'm going to walk up in front of these soccer coaches and I'm going to show them a video of a math teacher teaching a 10th grade math classroom. And they're going to extrapolate from that. And they're going to be like, yeah, this is great advice for me when I'm doing training with professional athletes. But it was too late, you know, he was finishing his introduction. It was too late to change it. And so like I had no other option but to walk to the front of the room and press play on the math video. But I was sure that they were like, it was just going to be stone cold silence when I was done with that video. I was amazed that you know, I showed like 30 seconds of it. And I said, what do you notice here that's useful to you? And instantly, the first coach who commented said, he's teaching everyone. And I honestly thought when he made that comment, that he was just being nice. Like he was like the one guy in the room who was trying to bail me out of what was going to be. a. But I said, could you say a little bit more about that? And he said, well, I'm noticing as he walks around this math classroom, he's interacting with every student and giving them precise feedback about what they need to improve. And I'm just struck as I think about that, how often in sports, like there, in our practices, there are some guys we don't talk to all day or all week, and they don't get that kind of precise feedback. And I'm wondering how he does that and how he prepares and organizes himself so he can give that kind of precise feedback. And I was about to comment and another guy, you know, just spoke up in the room and he was just like, I think this is so important from a relationship standpoint that at this level, unless you can get guys better, you know, we talk about relationships all the time and how important building relationships is with athletes. But unless we convince them that we can get them better, like that is why they're here, that this is their life's work. And so unless we can actually make them feel like we're able to get them better, we're never going to be able to build relationships. And so we're like often running with this I thought, really deep, really profound conversation about giving feedback to both the technical aspects of giving feedback, but also just the dynamics of letting everyone know that you were invested in their progress by giving them feedback. So they also just instantly saw it as a relationship video. And so away we went and we spent, you know, 40 minutes talking about this video of Daenerys Frazier's math class with soccer coaches. And maybe that was where the book started, where I was like, wow, okay, there's a lot here that they unpacked instantly from this from this video. And this has become a journey for you. I'm almost cutting to the end, but now you, you split your time, from what I understand it, between the K-12 teachers, principals, et cetera. You still do those workshops, yeah. but now you're also hosting workshops and, and coaching coaches in not just soccer, but other sports, from what I understand, right? Yeah, it's true. I'm in a crash course in learning the game of rugby and some other sports that I don't, I don't know that well. Yeah, I, I spend 80, you know, 80% of my time doing classroom teaching. It's still the most important work, but, you know, maybe 20% of my time I spend thinking about teaching and learning in a different setting. And I would just say that when I first started doing this, I was embarrassed. You know, I have a, I have a staff of people in our goal, our, our shared purpose is to improve quality of what happens in classrooms for the great majority of American kids. And that's a really important thing. And so I'd go off and I'd like do a workshop for some sports franchise and I'd come back to the office and I would try and hide it from people. They'd be like, where were you yesterday? And I would say like I was doing, I was just doing a quick session for, you know, an organization, but I couldn't really keep it secret for very long because I, I knew that the things that we knew about teaching in the classroom, like some of those things would be relevant to coaches. I think that that's what that, you know, experience in the conference room with the pro license course, I was like, wow, this is really, they feel like this is really relevant. But I've also been stunned by how relevant the things that coaches know and coaches talk about are to classroom teaching. And so I would come back to the office and I wouldn't be able to keep it a secret because I would say like, oh, this is exactly like this thing that we we're talking about with coaches. And here's here's how they address that challenge. And here's how they think about it. And so there's a real, uh, there's a really fascinating synergy, I think, between you know, the both forms of teaching, but they're 
in different settings. And so there's just a lot you can kind of see similarities and differences and, you know, common challenges that manifest in a slightly different way. You know, your book reminds me of, I had this teacher, shout out to Mr. Armstrong up at Binghamton. I don't know if he's still up there, but he was a university teacher who taught me ecology Mm. in college. And I go to his course and he says at the beginning of the course, he says, if you're here to learn ecology, I'm sorry to disappoint you. And I was like, what? This is ecology. And then he goes, well, okay, I'm, I'm being a little cute about it, but what I'm, what I'm going to teach you is about the ecosystem behind the university. There was a nature preserve. And he said, I'm going to teach you about that ecosystem. And through that one ecosystem, we're going to distill principles of ecology that you could apply to every other ecosystem. And actually in learning about that ecosystem, you'll know so much more. And now you have a story. And I think about your book as very similar because you pick soccer, which is actually a sport I don't know a lot about. It's actually probably this, of the major sports, the one I know least about. If we, if we want to call golf a sport, we could also put that there. But like those are two sports that I'm not, sorry to the golf people out there, that was meant as a dig. I know it's a sport. But what I want to do in this conversation is you also pepper in examples from other sports, but soccer is by far the most dominant sport in the book and the one that you have the most experience with. But we'll pepper in individual sports. So I'm in the middle as, as an adult learning tennis and, and I've been learning surfing for years. And then I played team sports as a kid. So American football, basketball, which I know you, you've peppered in examples from that. So, but, but there was something you said is before we move on that I thought was really interesting. You said something to the effect of students in math class have to master skill. And this was a math class. I think the video that you're showing have to master skills as individuals, but athletes on the soccer field have to make decisions as a group. Yeah. Fast. Yeah. But one K-12 digression, this made me think of, because I like you, when I go to a school, when I see group work, it's often a headache. Like I, I often makes me very nervous. It's often a chaos. It's not great. And I feel like uh, of the many things I didn't put enough attention to as a school principal was how to get to group activity faster and in more dynamic, important ways. As you were writing that, did it strike you? Or you're like, hmm, sports is kind of a stand-in for stuff that we haven't been able to do well in the classroom to help people be better in groups, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, I do, I, th I do think that, you know, one of the things that coaches think about, maybe some of the best coaches that I've worked with think about is they're always trying to stress the team dynamic. So one of the really fascinating things about elite level athletes is how much time they actually spend in classrooms. That like if you, so I have a premier league client and I have a, a client that's like a national rugby team of one of the major rugby nations. And they spend more time sitting in a, they don't call it a classroom, but sitting in a room watching, studying video and talking about tactical knowledge of the game and doing presentations on, you know, like what the game plan is. They spend more time doing that than they do actually on the field, especially in sports like that, where, you know, like physical loads on players are like carefully managed by the, you know, there's only so many more minutes you can harvest from the time you have on the field. And so a lot of the competitive advantages, what can you get out of video study and, and team meetings? And one of the coaches that I work with, he's a guy named Eddie Jones. He's sort of one of the sort of best known rugby coaches in the world. He's a former teacher and a former school assistant school head. And he just, he thinks about meetings the way that you or I would. And one of the things that he focuses on is, can we use meetings as a way to build camaraderie and team dynamics and all the things that we're trying to have happen on the field about guys connecting with each other and feeling like a group and making each other better by the way that they practice together. That team dynamic can also apply in the classroom. And in many ways, I think that's one of the things we overlook most quickly about American classrooms is that 
a classroom is a team endeavor, right? And that the individuals in the room are responding to the norms of the group. And if they perceive around them that their classmates are all in, are working hard, or that that's how we do it here, then, you know, that their classmates are hustling and they're going to hustle. It's the same way as a, a practice. And if people are, you know, not working that hard and they're kind of rolling their eyes and they're not that interested, then their perception of the norm will be like, we're not really all in here and I'm not going to try my hardest. And so I, I think there's very much a sense of like among the best coaches of how the meeting dynamic is part of the way that we build culture. The classroom is part of the way that we build culture. And then I think there are these things that are like slightly different, but maybe are potentially used, fascinating for us to think about, which is one of the prime differences, at least in like what I would describe as group invasion games, basketball, rugby, soccer, lacrosse, hockey. It's not just that everyone has to learn what they have to do to be successful. They have to learn to solve problems as a group in the blink of an eye. Right, you have less than a second as a basketball. Believe a fraction of a second to make the right decision, and the decision has to be legible to your teammates. Right, your teammates have to understand that that space behind the guy who's defending you means attack, and we both have to read it the same way at the same time. And so the the idea of like having a game model and having shared background knowledge and shared vocabulary to talk about things is like is actually doubly important in a sports setting. Because if I if I learn it and you don't. It's not just that I have to learn it and you have to learn it, but we have to learn it in a way that we understand. We understand what each other understands and when it's relevant. And that's actually, that's like a, that's a huge teaching challenge. Yeah. And you use an example and I'm definitely jumping ahead, but I, I did want to ask you about this. Is it Javier or Xavier? But use this example in your book of a, of a soccer player who on the face of it wasn't useful. Like it's a kind of an extreme way to put it, but like, depending on how you were thinking about it and the way that people were thinking about it at a certain point, this player was kind of passing it into space where there wasn't anybody there and sometimes retreating, I'm using all the wrong words, but you kind of reframed it and said, well, if you think about it differently and if everybody was on the same page about what he was trying to do, he's actually quite good at the game of soccer in a, in a different way and actually became, I think as a real person, like became really effective. Yeah, I'm just sort of telling the case study here of like a kid on a youth team. I called him Xavi because Xavi is sort of like one of the greatest players to play for Spain and just known as being this incredible problem solver and you know just a brilliant passer of the ball who could slice apart, you know, could perceive an opportunity and slice opponents apart, you know, very quickly with two touches. And so he's brilliant. And I was I was thinking about, you know, the kid I was thinking about in particular in the US who's like he or she is making runs off the ball and they're the right runs and they're brilliant runs, but if his or her teammates aren't thinking about passing the ball, they're thinking, oh, I think I'll take another, I'll, I'll keep dribbling the ball here. And the sort of imaginary Chavi, the 12 year old Chavi never gets the ball for those runs. He learns to stop making those runs, right? If you make a run, you never get the ball. You start thinking that why would you continue making those runs? And so the development of players who have the killer app, which is profound understanding of the game and the ability to unlock a defense, that only happens if the group environment is right. If all their players around them growing up understand the same model and understand why he would be making that run. So I was sort of telling the story of like, here's a kid who is trying to do all the right things that will ultimately be the things that, that could potentially make him great five years from now, but he's playing with a group of players who don't really understand what they're doing, have, don't understand the game, have been socialized often because they're like, they're great athletes, right? And so when you're the coach of 12-year-olds and you have a great athlete who can win the game for you by himself, what do you do? You encourage him to take the ball and go win the game by himself because that team wins and everybody's happy and it makes you look good as a coach. There are all these incentives to sort of continue pressing the lever of the individual success. But in the end, right, one, it means that players around him are not developing and are not learning the game. And in the end, that kid also suffers because when he gets to the elite level, if he doesn't understand how to, you know, and everyone has caught up and the defenders are also really good and he can't win a game based 
on being an athletic outlier. Oftentimes, the, those kids are the kids we coach the worst because we allow them to persist to do things that are successful when you are an outlier, but are not sustainable when everyone around you can play the game. And they get to the elite level and we wonder what happens to them. And what happened to them is we didn't teach them the game right early on. You know, you remind me of something I wanted to ask you about, which is Bill Simmons and Malcolm Gladwell recently had a conversation where they were talking about youth sports and the challenge of timing for youth sports. And they're, and they're talking about this, this hockey data from up in Canada, which you may have seen, which is your birth date dictates so much about your success. And what Gladwell was proposing is that you're promoted on your birthday as opposed to at the calendar year. And the benefit of it, as he described it, is you have, ex first of all, it's more fair to everybody. Second of all, because if you're not, it's not obvious to the audience, it means that if you're a January, if I'm getting this right, yeah, January baby, you're currently very advantaged. Whereas if you're a December, you're not because if, I might be getting that opposite, but basically you get the point. The long, the the older you are relative to your peers, the more advantage you have. So he said, look, this has two advantages. One is it's fair, but two is it gives kids two sides of the coin. One is they get the experience of being physically dominant and confident relative to their, what they could be. But then they also have the experience of being the runt of the litter. So when they're first pushed up, they have to rely more on the skill, the awareness, the perception. You know, what you talk about in this book is like thinking faster, not just being faster, and that being such a critical part of the sport. So I just, I couldn't help but ask you whether you think that's a good idea or not. Yeah, I think that making some sort of concession for the concept here is relative age, which is one, some kids develop faster than others. So you could have 12-year-olds that are in radically different places in terms of their physical development. But also, you know, a developmental difference of 12 months is an immense amount of time when you're 11. And so what happens is all the kids whose birthdays are in the first three months after whatever the cutoff is get identified early and they get put in the elite programs and they get tapped because they look like they're better because they're, they're better athletes and they're bigger, faster, stronger. And we're missing and losing, we're missing out on the kids who are born the other nine months who are behind at age 11 because nine months makes a big difference then and, and that nine months will not make a difference when they're 22 and 23 and 24. So I think that, you know, elite programs now, I think are really conscious of, of trying to look for and compensate for relative age. I, I don't know if you listened to the podcast that I did with Matt Lowry and Steve Cavino, their coach and the director at Atlanta United's Academy, but they're obsessed with this idea of, you know, when a player is a physical outlier, they push him up a year level to force him to compete against players who he can't physically dominate. You know, so he has to, they have to learn to play right. And interestingly, you know, they have had a couple of kids who not only made the Atlanta United first team, but have gone on, you know, play for the national team and things like that. And they're often kids who spent at least some time a little bit small, a little bit slow, you know, and had to learn to compensate and find a solution. And That's why siblings are always so effective together. It's always the second sibling, right? Like the younger kid is often, like having an older sibling seems to be like a tried and true way to get somebody to level up. Yeah, you know, you have an older sibling who like wants to put you in your place and you're going to have to learn to shield the ball and you're going to have to learn to use your body. So there's, there's probably, you know, you know we're, we're really describing your benefits to both, which is you want to struggle a little bit, but you also want to have the opportunity to learn the game right. And in particular, one of the fastest ways to squander an athlete's potential is to let him be an athletic outlier and rely on things that he can do to be successful that aren't sustainable in the long run. And I think that's just an area that was sort of the story of, of Chavi is supposed to be like, here's the story of a kid who nobody sees because he understands the game, but he's a little bit slow and he gets pushed off the ball because everyone is bigger than him. And he's making these great runs off the ball. And the quote, best player on the field is on his 12th touch. 
And if you look at, you know, if you look at football, soccer, as it's played at the elite levels, no one takes more than three touches. You know, occasionally someone will take, you know, five or six or seven, but for the five or six or seven touches, but for the most part, it's a two and three touch game. But at the youth level, right, no one's passing to the choppies of the world, you know, because um, the quote best players on his 15th touch, which is just never going to happen to him in eight years time. Yeah. I remember, I forget, I forget what the number was, but our basketball teacher was, this, he was also like a great math teacher, Mr. Richards. And he, he used to have the basketball team they had in practice. And sometimes in the first few games of the season, they had a number of passes they had to make before they would shoot. And they hated it. <laughs> like they had to make a certain number of passes, even if they're wide open. I remember watching some of these games. It was really fun to see. Can I tell you, here's a really fascinating thing, just speaking of basketball, that a coach that I work with, his name is Luke Gromer. He's just a, he's a, just a really smart youth basketball coach in Arkansas. And one of the things he talks about with players is shot selection, right? Which is, we should know what a good shot is. And he actually has like a scoring system for talking about, is this shot a nine like we if we get the shot we always take it versus this shot is a one which is like even if it goes in it's a terrible shot and so when they talk about they have like a really clear vocabulary for shot selection so then when they're practicing he tries to like respond with feedback telling players whether their shot selection is good before the ball goes in the basket right so he will call out like seven like in the you that that shot is a seven that's a good shot take it and when he shows video to players he actually cuts so he'll show video of them playing basketball and he'll cut the video before the ball hits the basket because as soon as the ball hits the basket kids are distracted by did it go in if it went in it was a good shot if it didn't go in it was a bad shot and he wants them to think about the decision not the outcome which I think is one of the key tenets of being a great youth coach right so he's like don't look you know Think, focus on the decision, not what, not the outcome. The decision is, you know, let's look at how your body is positioned, where you are relative to the basket, where the defense is, what are your options. So I just think that's a really, I just love that way of causing players to understand the game differently. I think it was Belichick. It might have been Saban, or probably both of them, given that they trade notes, but he scores his players. And even if they get, like, say, a sack, if they're out of position, he counts as right. a negative play. Right. And I think that's amazing. I mean, I had this experience the other day. I have this... Uh, this really interesting coach, this guy, Eric, who's been coaching me in tennis. And I, we play at the end of every practice session, we play against each other. And I took a game off of him this weekend. And then he crushed me in the second one. And we debriefed after it. And he said, you know what happened to you? He was like, you took a bunch of shots in the first one that were low percentage shots and you got lucky. And then you just went and did those low percentage shots again. And he was like, the lesson here is take the high percentage shots. And it was the best thing ever, by the way. I did a tournament right after that. And I was just moonballing and boring people to death and wound up winning a bunch of matches I shouldn't have because I, d I went for zero winners, which is exactly the strategy for somebody at my position. He's teaching you to see the signal and not the noise. But there's so much noise for athletes, right? You get implicit feedback every time you hit the ball in the game of tennis, which is, did that shot work out well for me? And sometimes that feedback is deceptive and sometimes it's revealing. And then I think there's this whole, like in group games, there's this whole second thing of like you, when you pass a ball or you shoot a ball, you always get implicit feedback. Did that pass get to my teammate? Did the ball go in? And so that causes you attend, to attend to those things. But the things that you do off the ball, is my spacing correct? Did I make the right cut? Did I box out? You know, those things don't usually get implicit feedback. In other words, you don't learn as clearly whether you made the right decision from the outcome. And so one of the key things that coaches do is they amplify they amplify the signal and try to help players ignore the noise, which is like, I constantly talk about what happens off the ball. <laughs> or I help you to see, as your tennis coach did, like you're being fooled by a random outcome here. And what you need to recognize is that those shots were understanding the difference between luck and good decision making. Yeah, you, you, you make a point in your book about how like that off ball, but I also think off ball can be metaphorical for other sports that aren't necessarily 
ball dominant that like often the time away from the sort of key dramatic moment is undercoached. Maybe say more about that because I couldn't agree more. And I've, 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 it made me think of like five different examples from five different sports of just how much it matters away from the sort of rising action, if you will, of the sport. Yeah, I'll just I'll just go to soccer here because that's the language that I speak. At the elite level, your movement, you know, you, you probably have the ball at your feet for a minute or two in a typical game. And then you spend 89, 88 or 89 minutes away from the ball. And those are the decisions that really make you valuable to the team. So when you, a typical thing you would think about is when you run, when you make a run, like when you cut to get open for the ball, do you change your speed? Do you snap the run to change speed to get open into space? Do you take a like a, a, a jab step or a counter step first to unweight your opposition and make them think you're going in a different direction? And those are the th- those are like a couple of the things that like would make a really out- outstanding player off the ball, right? Well, one is just like, are that is it the right run? Is your is your positioning right? But then like, how do you disguise your run? How do you shape your run? What's the change of speed in the run? And so one beautiful thing that this coach, Steve Cavino, who I had on previously does is he's at Atlanta United. He walks around with an iPad on the field while players are playing, but he's filming the players off the ball, right? So the ball is somewhere. He's, he's just filming the players who are making the runs away from the ball. And then he brings them around and he'll show them, like, here's you. How do you evaluate your run? How do you evaluate your movement? So he's just making visible this huge part of the game that's dramatically undercoached, right? So they'll go through four or five clips of like one to five, score yourself on this. And it causes players to raise in their own consciousness. I should always be thinking about my run, my work off the ball. That's what Steve is looking at. He's standing there. He's looking at my, you know, it puts it in the, in the primary space in your attention and it allows you to develop lots and lots of like visual feet, seeing what good runs look like, seeing the difference between a very good run and a, and a mediocre run. And frankly, just being accountable for the fact that, you know, like I didn't, my run was okay, but not great there. Yeah. I saw an example of this recently. There's this great docu-series on Amazon Prime about the Nadal Tennis Academy. You'd love this because it's a school. So it's got all the school stuff and it seems like a magical place, like just a place anybody would want to send their kids. You got Nadal who lives next door. So he's just bouncing around as is his uncle, who's like, you know, world-class tennis coach. And there were so many moments of like, I'm going to expand on off ball to say like, they're so attentive to all the things that happen around a tennis court. So like the, on the off ball moments, like I, you, there's this moment where he's coaching a kid to keep moving back and forth, back and forth, back and forth in a pretty dramatic way. And he was like, essentially like, I want to see you tire yourself out in a practice, just moving back and forth, back and forth, whether you think you need it or not. And he kind of explained that. And then they kind of cut to later in the same episode, they're in the classroom together talking about everything. And the teacher in that classroom is explaining to kids, kind of showing them video back of their attitude on court. And they're kind of giving them feedback. And if you've ever watched tennis, one of the things that is easy to say and hard to implement is tennis players are their own worst enemy in their body language, their self-talk, their screaming, throwing rackets and all this. And they spend so much time on like this question of like, how do you avoid that death spiral and showing it back to the kids to be like, this is what you need to avoid. And I found that just such a fascinating, obviously like we should like creating schools around sports is amazing. And, you know, I, I want to attend Nadal Tennis Academy, but okay. We're getting into the weeds on some later stuff, but I want to take a step back. You start your book, I don't want to, because everything's mental, but you kind of talk about 
two things, which is decision-making and problem-solving pretty early in the book. Let's talk about what the difference between those two are and what good coaches do to emphasize each and ensure that their kids are strong on both of those measures. Well, it's a little bit of an arbitrary distinction that I invented, but decision-making, let's say, is fast, right? One of the things about sport is that you have to make decisions about things faster than you can have a conscious thought. And like a good analogy for this is in baseball, the average major league fastball arrives at home plate in four hundredths of a second. One of the things that we've learned about, you know, from cognitive science and like this like beautiful flowering of our knowledge of the brain in the last 10 or 15 years is how long it takes to have a conscious thought. And the answer is five to six hundredths of a second. By the way, there was a serve at the US Open that was 148 miles per hour this weekend. How do you return that? Right. How do you even know where it's going, right? It skips your conscious, what you would call your working memory or the part of your brain that thinks consciously. And so in cases like that, perception is, is the key skill, which is if your eyes aren't looking at the right thing, if your eyes don't go to the right place, you can't make the right decision about it. And so in the case of, uh, of hitting a fastball, it turns, you know, like for years, I think that like the narrative was great hitters have quick hands, right? They have, they have bat speed. And so they would do like bat speed exercises. And then someone, someone actually, when Albert Pujols was one of the, was like the best hitter in the major league, someone tested his reaction time and his reaction time is below average for the adult male population, not below average for major league baseball players, below average for the adult male population, right? How does Albert Pujols do this? And the answer is he's looking at the pitcher before the pitcher throws the ball and he's reading visual cues from the pitcher, right? Rate of hip rotation, angle, what they now call arm channel, which is like the angle of your shoulder and your elbow and your wrist, right? And so before the pitch is thrown, he's already picking up cues on what the pitch is likely to be and where it's going. And so the interesting thing about this is like, this is a lucky accident. How did Albert Pujols come in his development to start looking at these things and reading them in a picture? And and why was there some other player who could have been just as great who never learned to look for those things and was always guessing? And actually, when they do like eye tracking studies of, of hitters in the major leagues, they find that better hitters have quieter eyes, right? Their eyes lock in on the place where the visual cues that tell them the right information is like where those cues are likely to come from and their eyes rest there very calmly. And a lesser hitter is sort of nervous and they're scanning and looking around because they don't really know what to be looking at. And scanning is incredibly costly from a cognitive standpoint. So when we have to make fast decisions, the most important thing is a perception action linkage, which is what am I looking at and what are the actions that I that I have learned to associate with, with those perceptions? And so like you translate that to basketball or or soccer or football or, you know, one of the most important things if you want fast decision making is training athletes' eyes and making sure that they're looking at the right things. Because oftentimes, you know, again, novices are looking around nervously because they don't really know what they should be looking at. They're looking in the wrong place. They aren't picking up the ball early. They're not picking up the body cues from the opposition early. And experts through some often lucky happenstance, they're, you know, they know what to look for and their eyes rest there. And so with decision making, Right. It's not really going to help to say, Albert, what should you do when you know it's a curveball? Right? <laughs> like, we, we, we ask players about the decision, right? Why didn't you pass the ball to Ravi there? And actually, the reason that I didn't pass the ball to Ravi is because I didn't see Ravi because I wasn't looking for Ravi's run. And so one of the best ways to improve players' 
decision making is actually to improve their eyes and to help them to look in the right places and understand where the cues are. And so I sometimes give this example with, with soccer coaches, which is I've got like one of the things as a center back in soccer, you mark the opposition forward depending on whether there's pressure on the ball. So someone's bringing the ball through midfield, you're like 20 yards ahead of it, you're marking the striker. If there's no pressure on the ball, you want to give space because the player can easily play in behind you and then you would be exposed by a faster center forward. But if there's pressure on the ball, you would want to be tighter on your man because it's going to be much harder for that player to strike a ball over your head and expose you in behind. So let's say I've got a center back. His name is Ravi. He's there's no pressure on the ball, but he's tight to his man. So he's made like he's made a tactical mistake. Typically, a coach might pause and be like, Ravi, you got to give space, right? Which is like, I'm telling you what you have to do, but that's not really a sustainable decision for you because you don't really understand how to make that decision yourself. A better approach, I think, would be like, pause. I need to make sure that now you're looking visually at what you would be looking at when you're playing. So I need to almost recreate the scene and be like, Ravi, what do you see? Right. And what, I w- what I'm hoping you'll say is there's no pressure on the ball. And then it's really simple. Then that you've made the perception and now I can be like, so what's the action? I should drop off. But if I say, what, I, what do you see? And you tell me like, no one's hustling back or, you know, like we're out of position. It tells me that you don't really know what the cue is that you should, what you should be looking at in that moment. And so now my job is to orient your eyes and be like, when the ball comes through the midfield and you're trying to position yourself, the most important thing you should be looking for is there, is there pressure on the ball? And that's how you orient yourself. And now I've taught you how to make that decision going forward. And so if I don't teach you the perceptive part, it's going to be really hard for me to teach you the decision when things are fast. So decision-making, I would say like problem solving, is like something you do slow and decision-making is something you do fast. And there I really have to think about the role of like, where are your eyes looking and what are they looking for? Yeah. Problem solving is almost like, it, like where there's not an easy answer necessarily. It might take some time to, to work it out. Whereas decision-making is like, if it's a good team, you have a a vocabulary and set of principles that tell you, okay, in this situation, this is what we're supposed to do. And what you're saying is in that circumstance, often the best thing to do is kind of give it back to the the player and say, well, what are you looking at? And then hopefully if everything has been done right, and, you, and we'll talk about a little bit how to set this up and they understand the principles at work in your team and they have a vocabulary, they could be like, oh yeah, okay. There's no pressure on the ball. I need to step back. Yes. And there is problem. Problem solving is slow. Problem solving is they constantly have space in the midfield. Why do they constantly have space? in the midfield. Let's make a tactical adjustment. You know, my number six, you know, my, my wing backs need to mean to pinch in and my number, my number eight needs to press higher. Right. And I can actually, I can actually tell players to do that. Be like, okay, Ravi, I want you to be five, you know, five yards higher up the field. And Kevin and Jose, I want you to, you know, we want you to pinch in to compress the space there. That's like, it's problem solving. We have time to talk about it. I just think it's important to know the difference between problem solving and decision making because the solution is different. One of them is a perceptive issue. Yeah. You know, you remind me of when you're talking about like the good coaching. There's this guy named Tommy Potterton who uh, I send my, every time I can get surfing on video, I send it to him and he sends me back in like a video that he narrates over and will sometimes pause. And uh, I should show you some of these videos. They're really interesting, but they, he will pause it on a wave because a wave is like, very much about where your eyes are. A lot of people I think don't realize like so much of surfing is just making sure you're looking at the right things. And he'll pause it at the key part of the wave and there's kind of two main things you're looking for in a wave. One is, are you getting a high line? Cause you don't want to be at the bottom of a wave cause you lose speed and it's, you can get into some trouble depending on how big the wave is. Uh, so you want to be on a high line and that's largely dictated by where you're looking. And the second thing is if you're looking, you should be looking in front of you and looking in back of you to see like the wave breaking behind you and breaking in front of you. And he'll pause the video at a sort of key point. He'll be like, all right, where are your eyes right now in the video? And then that's kind of both an indicator of, am I looking at the right thing in the moment? 
But now that I'm looking at myself, what am I seeing? And that's the sort of digital conversation we're having where we're like, oh, the wave is breaking in front of you. What do you need to do? Well, you need to cut back, right? And now he's giving me kind of like the language and vocabulary and the method, which is I know according to his method, all right, if the wave is peeling in front of you, I should be cutting back and I can answer the question for myself. I was just watching a video of, I don't know if you know Dusty May, he's the head coach of Florida Atlantic University's basketball team that went to the final four last year. They're kind of like this incredible Cinderella story that came out of nowhere. He's a really good coach, but he's a really good teacher. So I was watching him. He sent me a video of him doing a video session with one of his players. And there's this really interesting moment where they're, so they're watching video together of the player practicing. And he's like, okay, what do you notice about yourself in this video? He's like, I'm at, you know, like my positions, you know, I should be. And he's like, now I want you to watch again and only watch above your shoulders. By which he means, watch your eyes. What are your eyes doing? And now the player's like, oh, I see. He's like, what are you doing in this video that you weren't doing last week? He's like, my eyes are on the ball here early. As soon as the, ball, the shot comes out of the, the opposition's hands, I'm, I'm watching the flight of the ball last week. You know, last week I wasn't. He's like, yes. What does that do for you? Right. So he's so three or four times to this clip, he's like, where are your eyes right now? Like he's, they're watching him watching basically. And he's socializing him to make sure that he's watching the right things because that's, you know, trying to cause him to be more aware of and more alert to where his eyes go when, when he's playing. But they're sort of just like, as they watch the clip, the player isn't, isn't noticing what his eyes are doing. He stops and he's like, okay, I want you to watch this clip and only watch what your eyes do the whole time. Right. And this is like, it was fascinating fascinating to watch and to see how much the player discovered about like, I'm not, I'm not watching the thing that I'm supposed to be watching right now. Yeah. You talk about this as the, uh, the quiet eye. I think this is the Joan Vickers yeah. uh, term. And it's like the, the called a gaze of an expert. Like if you ever look at Tom Brady on a field, it's like, he's on a, like seemingly unaware, but obviously peripheral vision of all the chaos around him in the pocket. And just kind of like squarely looking at, you know, his reads on his receivers most of the time. I think it's one of the most fascinating things about sports, which is you would think that the mark of an expert would be that they would take in more, more information with their eyes, that their eyes would be like busier and they'd be darting around, like taking in everything. But it's actually the opposite, that experts' eyes are quieter than a novice because they know where they're supposed to be looking and actually looking around and searching for things when you don't know what you're going to find again like uses up your working memory that you need for other things it's it's costly and so it's really counterintuitive but experts actually look at less than novices they take in less information but they process it more and they understand it they're like sort of calmly laser focused on what's important which is why i think you hear so many athlete you know elite athletes talk about like suddenly the game slowed down for me what they're really describing is i learned i'm learning to make a habit of my eyes going to the right place it has a calming effect on me because I'm not glancing around, searching around, busily try, wondering what to look at. And suddenly I, you know, I see all signal and less noise and I know what's going to happen. And that like that narrative of like the game slowing down is really about your eyes locking in and becoming calmer and quieter and more focused. One thing that anybody who knows you knows this would have shown up in the book, but the importance of a shared vocabulary. And maybe given the timing, let's let's group the shared vocabulary and describe it and the genesis of it, which you know, you the taxonomy of effective teaching, which obviously the influence of that in what you are describing here is obvious to anybody who knows you. Also so let's tackle the shared vocabulary piece with the principles of play piece, because I actually think they're related. And describe what good coaches do here. Yeah, this is really the story of the importance of background knowledge to perception and play, which is to conceive of something I almost, for the most part, I have to have a word for it. So sometimes like I could like show you a picture of a bunch of trees and say, what do you see here? And you might say like, oh, there are a bunch of trees and they're different colors. But if you, if you had a word for deciduous versus coniferous or birches versus, you know, maples, 
and I showed you that picture, you could be like, oh, there are lines here of like deciduous and then coniferous trees. And like if you if you have a word for it and you can conceive of it, then suddenly you start to perceive it in the environment. And so vocabulary is incredibly important to perception. Right. And we we try to work on this with players all the time by we could shout phrases at them like stay connected or get in the space, right? But they don't often actually know what we they don't have a firm understanding of what that term means. And so they're not able to perceive it. But if I can build a player's perception to have a really clear concept of an idea, then they're likely to start seeing it. So I have a I have a, a mate named Tim named Tim Bradbury. He's like a just he knows more about the game of soccer than like almost anyone I've ever met. And I was watching a match with him. And it's a Premier League match and he a player receives the ball and he he does what Tim calls, he seals his opponent with the first touches, which is he takes the touch across the body of the player who's trying to defend him. So now the player has to sort of like go through his back to try and get the ball. And he, as soon as he attached that phrase to an image, I suddenly started to notice how many times players were sealing the opposition with, the, with their first touch while we're watching this match. And I had never noticed that before. So by conceiving of it, I start to perceive it and understand it. And now I'm learning a lot about like all the, all the subtle dynamics. So if we, like, there's a lot of like talk in the sports sector about like the game is the best teacher and games-based teaching and play, you know, and I, I agree that like it, because perception is so important, players should be playing in game-like situations as opposed to like standing in lines at cones, right? Because standing in lines at cones doesn't prepare me to perceive the game as it really exists. But the thing that we need to know about game-based environments is that you learn from those environments in proportion to how much you understand about what you're looking at. And one of the key tools that I can use to help you to understand is to give you a vocabulary. But then again, like to go back, there are 11 of us. So if we have the same word and we conceive of the of core ideas the same way, now we start, suddenly start to see things more quickly than the opposition. So I think it's a big part of like Pep Guardiola is this, maybe the best soccer coach in the world. He's, he's legendary and he has like this concept of play where like, Everyone has a shared vocabulary for the space we're supposed to be. And so if we all know that like this back pass from Ravi to Jose signals that the player on the far wing is supposed to like now cut into space because that back pass is a signal that like there's going to be a diagonal forward pass off that ball. Now that we have a shared vocabulary, if we can name that thing, if we have a shared vocabulary for it, we will see it slightly faster than the opposition, right? And that like, right, just we, all of us recognize that it's on a third of a second before the opposition does, that's huge in basketball and soccer and hockey. So the idea that we all, if we all have the same language, start to perceive similarly and we start to believe, perceive faster similarly, that is the killer app. Right. Like, you know, I know very little about soccer before I understand the Italians are like famously defensive and kind of like to control the ball and like slow the game down a little bit. They they actually play like my my football team, the Buffalo Bills do on defense, which is they use leverage as the term, right? So if you're on the Bills or you're on the Chiefs, you're both using the term leverage, but the difference between the Bills and the Chiefs is the coach is saying a different thing as it relates to leverage. So if you're on the Bills, they're saying, all right, you, they're giving more space to the receivers. It's almost like, don't give away big passes, play, like allow people to kind of march down the field and hope that the law of averages works out so that people screw things up enough so that at some point you get the ball back and you may, you know, allow more field goals than the other team, but you're not going to allow a lot of long touchdowns. Whereas if you're on the, another team, you may be like, all right, we're, our leverage is going to be, this is like a kind of your soccer example. Like, we're not going to give nearly as much room. We're going to try to take away even the small plays. So like the, the vocabulary may be the same, but the principle of what we're going to ask you to do with that vocabulary is different. And that makes the difference between different systems. But good coaches can have totally different systems, but they're, they're at least making a, a call as to what their system is. 
Yeah, we have to play in coordination, right? It's not like creativity is a beautiful thing, but it's usually creativity within a system where we understand we have a shared, clear, shared understanding of the things that we want to try to accomplish and how they're slightly different from what they're slightly different in different situations and they're slightly different from what another team might want to try to accomplish. So we're going to try and like when we press, I think Jesse Marsh is a, is a master of this. He's just, you know, maybe one of the foremost American soccer coaches, he coached, you know, coached in the premier league, which is an incredible accomplishment for an American coach. And, And I think everything he wants players to do, he's careful to name, right. And and to give a name to it, a unique name that no one else uses. So that when we talk about, I might be bastardizing this concept, but he talks about this concept called the final step, which is when you're pressing in soccer. So the opposition has the ball, let's say the backs have the ball and you're sort of running at them, trying to cause them to make a mistake and win the ball from them. It's a high risk, high reward action that your your forwards would only do if your defenders did it you would you know you would be terrible you would give up goals but the forwards you know in the in the opposition's third are willing to take this high risk high reward approach but for a soccer player it's also counterintuitive which is you you start to attack the guy and you're like okay he might beat me and you and so you kind of shy off on your last step and you don't go all the way through and he talks about like when we're pressing the last step is the most important step where you have to almost like explode through the ball and like take the risk of being wrong because if you're right it's big and again, like this is probably not how he would describe it. He would probably vomit here, here. But like, but just assume that he's named this thing the last step, which is no, no other, you know, like as far as I know, no other team has a name for this. It's our concept for how we want to press. We're going to be hyper aggressive on the, on the press in the final third. And so now we have, we have a name for the thing that we want to do. Now I can reinforce it. Yes. That, that's the final step, right? I can help you to see when you're doing it. And when it becomes a shared vocabulary, I know that when you press, you're going to go in hard for that last step. And I can actually anticipate it and know that it's going to happen and be, and be ready for, even if you don't get the ball, your, your, op, your opponent is going to take a heavy touch and it's going to roll ahead of them a little bit. And you can be the second man in to, to win the ball. So just that idea of like, we have unique names for the things that we value as part of our model. And that helps us to build the habit of doing them and to see the value and to recognize when it happens and the opportunities, but also we can read it. We can read each other's actions on the field more clearly because we understand the same body of concepts. I just think that that's vocabulary is hugely underrated in its importance to players' shared conception of the game. And like if, I, if I'm, if you run a sports team, you know, you run a club out there, I think one of the f- smartest things you can do is standardize vocabulary across the coaches in the club. My daughter's a soccer player. She played at a really, really good club that I was so happy with. Blackwatch Premier, Albany, New York, by the way. But she had one coach who talked about receiving the ball side on for a whole year, which is like you basically orient yourself sideways to the ball when it's coming. So you can like go either direction when you're shooting. And she had another coach the next year who talked about receiving the ball on the half turn. Those are exactly the same things with different terms to describe them. But because the coaches were using different terms, she never, it, it took her like nine months to realize, oh, receiving side on is receiving the ball on the half turn. Everything I know about that concept applies here. These are not different things. They're the same things, right? And so she would have been learning so much faster if the coaches had been using the same terminology across the club for like, this is how we play. We always receive on the half turn or we always receive side on. It doesn't matter which one you choose. Just the consistency of vocabulary allows players to coalesce their experience experience around a single idea and learn more about it, you know, in an organized way. I want to, one of the things I'm trying to do as a coach is organize players' long-term memory in a logical way for them and in a logical way for the team. And if I can do that, it looks magical on the field because we're all kind of like reading each other. And it looks like Johan Cruyff has, <laughs> has this great phrase about like, 
soccer looks complex, but it's actually people doing simple things, simple things very well, very fast. I hesitate to go down this road, but I do want to say, because we're running out of time, and I almost think that we're just on chapter one, by the way. So this we can call this the first chapter of this discussion. That book will put you to sleep. No, stop it. You know, just to round out this chapter, you you talk about how to set up practice in a very tangible way. And it it's actually also reminds me of the teaching side of things because you talk about the differences between skill-based activities, like drills could be an example of that, but you talk about how you almost wanna, you wanna build those in ways that build perception. You talk about game-based activities in, in ways that often kind of distort the game in some way to get at some kind of larger point. And then tactical activities, which are like there's some particular way of doing things that you're going to you know use in the next game or whatever that you want to have people practice. And I would say for both game-based activities and tactical activities, you make this point, I think it was in relation to tactical activities, but I, I'm pretty sure you mean both game-based and tactical activities, that you want to start from the previous phase of play. It was a point that you made. And I saw an example of this yesterday. I, I watched, I was telling you offline that I watched Djokovic's and Sabalenka's practice sessions at the U.S. Open yesterday, which is really cool. If you ever like want the cheapest ticket to the U.S. Open, by the way, if you're listening, you just go there and you can get into the practice sessions. I mean, that's going to be the ticket that I value the most. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, and so I watched both Djokovic and, and Sabalinka, who's now number one uh, as of this podcast for women. And they both did the same thing. That was an pl- application of this principle, which is what is one of the most important, probably the second most important stroke in tennis is the forehand, right? The serve is the first, probably. And what I saw them doing, both of them did the same drill, which is they served and they had somebody return their serve and they hit the forehand. But what they did was they had two people, basically they were playing against doubles. So they had one person on each side. So they basically would return the forehand and basically they had it so it was covered on both hands and they basically did another return of forehand. And essentially what they're saying was, my read on this was they stacked the deck to say, we want the most powerful serve return you possibly can have and third forehand to say, if you're playing the law of percentages, you're not just hitting forehands. Like the most common forehand you're going to see is not going to be in some kind of rally, like the 20th forehand, which is going to be kind of weak. The first forehand you're going to see is going to be coming off of your serve. It's going to be a gun. Yeah. And it's going to be really fast. And then the second most common is going to be the return to that. And so we want to have two people there to make sure that we can't recreate what Alcaraz's return is going to look like. But if we put two really competent people next to you, we're going to bring the heat on your... And I thought this was just a really... They both did the same exact thing. And that was what they were repeating over and over and over again. So it was basically the first and second most likely forehand you're going to hit. And they just did over and over and over again off of the serve motion. Because that going from a serve to a forehand is more common probably than going from a forehand to a forehand, you know? So I just thought that was really interesting and as an application of that. Yeah, and put in almost making like the practice harder than the match, right? Which is like, I'm, yeah. well, when I'm manufacturing a way to cause the challenging event to occur more regularly in a slightly unpredictable way, but to occur more regularly and to cause myself to be comfortable hitting shots that are actually more difficult than I'll have to hit in the match. So the match seems relatively calming, which it seems like that would be part of what's happening there. The idea of like of starting from the previous phase of plays is interesting. I was watching a basketball team that I work with some, they were working on fast break offense. So the idea is you get a rebound under your own basket and you break out, right? The way that they started this drill was the players would be sort of in the lanes that they would want to be running up the court and a player would like grab a rebound and they'd break up the court together. And the first thing that I noticed about this is that everyone is already in position when the fast break starts, right? So that's useful and great. And I should practice something like that. 
But if I want to prepare my players for the game, I should have the rebound drill start from we should actually be defending and we should be out of position because so much of sport is exerting order over chaos, right? Is actually getting into those positions, getting into the lanes that I want to when I'm actually out of position because I was defending. And so we just talked about like, that drill is not sufficient to prepare players to run the fast break because everyone is already in position. And so what we should have people practice, like finding their position as they're running up the court because they're out of position, because they've been trying to defend. A good example, this came to me because this really great coach that I know, Christian Lavers, was asking, he, he was watching a practice and it was a group of soccer players and they were learning to attack the goal. And every time the exercise started, the coach would feed the ball to the midfielder who's supposed to have the ball, and then they would attack and everyone was already in position. But in the match, you win the ball and half the team is out of position because they've been marking, you know, and so on. Like, and so he was like, the drill should start not by the coach feeding the ball into the center midfielder who wants the ball, but we should have to win a loose ball or win the ball from the opposition. And then we should start all of us out of position. And we have to get our positions as we're moving forward and attacking because that is the real challenge of the game. And I think that's like one of the key ideas of this idea of like in the final phases of preparation, the exercise should start in the previous phase of the game so that I don't start with this sort of fall order of like my wingers were always where the winger is supposed to be and the other midfielder is exactly where he's supposed to be but actually we have to start out of position and force ourselves to be able to attack and recover our positions as we're attacking because that is like this hidden the hidden challenge which is we start in a position of chaos yeah i mean that makes a lot of sense i saw this would be the last point but i saw this college coach uh, not college like junior coach with his same practice courts uh working with a player and the player was struggling with her backhand and the coach and the player were in dialogue and you could hear it again, another reason why it's awesome to go to this thing. But I heard the player say, and this is so self-aware of the player, you keep feeding me backhands. I know they're backhands. So it's not helping me because the problem I'm having is late preparation. And I can, if I know it's coming, I can prepare early because I know it's coming. But the problem is I hate backhands. So I'm trying to run around it as a forehand and I'm making a decision late to do a backhand. So I need you to randomize it. Essentially, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but that's what they were saying. And I was like, this is so smart. Like the player knows exactly what they need to do. Yeah, this is fascinating. Block, this is like the story of blocked serial and random practice, which is when you're just trying to learn the mechanics of your backhand, it's probably good to do blocked practice, which is 15 backhands in a row when I know the backhands are coming. But as that player pointed out, like it doesn't actually prepare me for a big part of the skill, which is like recognizing, oh, it's going to be a backhand, deciding it has to be a backhand, you know, like even like recognizing that I can't, I'm not going to be able to cheat my way to a forehand here. And so it has to be unpredictable. I think this has had a huge effect in major league baseball because batting practice used to be like 10 fastballs, 10 curveballs, 10 sliders, right? And like, and, and the big part of hitting the pitch is actually recognizing what pitch. So, so first I think there was a lot of like movement to like, let's randomize. First of all, let's have someone pitching it. So you're actually reading the a pitcher's motion, but let's it's also like why a ball machine is kind of useless, not useless, but close to, Yeah. but then, so let's, let's random. So you don't know what pitch is coming, right? That really prepares you to hit. But then a really interesting thing happened, I think, which is a lot of batting practices. It serves two purposes. Purposes. One, it teaches you to hit, but it also prepares you for the game. And I know this this is one of the major league baseball teams where I had a conversation with the hitting coach. And what they decided to do was in baseball, when the season starts, you don't really have practice, right? You have 162 games a year, right? You're basically like practice is the warm up for the next game. So your warm up is both your practice and your preparation. 
which is like your, the, your long-term investment in your skills, but also you're getting ready to play that day. So at first they were like, okay, batting practice is always going to be unpredictable. You're not going to know what pitch is going to come in. And, and the result was the practice was probably more productive in the long run, but it like was, it's really hard to be in that environment and it affects your confidence. And so that made players potentially perform less well in the short run because they weren't like, oh, I'm like, I'm feeling it. So they changed it. So it was the first 10 pitches are like, well, it's going to be randomized. You won't be able to know what pitches, but then the last 10 pitches, you get to tell us what, what you want. It's going to be predictable. You kind of groove your swing, get back in your confident, you know, your confident pregame side, and then you walk out and you hit better. So that, I think they had to like find this balance between long run learning and sort of like and gain and the psychology of game preparation. I just thought that was like super fascinating. Well, okay. We are out of time. And so listeners, once again, leave uh, a review. And actually in that review, you could say, I want a part two of this coaching discussion and we'll absolutely deliver on that. Doug, you just have to promise me that if any AFC East teams call you up for your expertise that sabotage- Only the Bills. Yeah, you could you could help the Bills. Uh, just answer the call and then just teach them everything wrong. When Bills Nation calls, who says no? I'm coming as your intern on that project. That's yeah. the one promise I need. I'll be there. Sean McDermott, if you're listening, Brandon Bean- we're here for you. Big fan. Rooting for you guys on Monday Night Football. That's where we've come. It's going to be a great first game of the season. I, know, I, I had tickets. I sold them because I the la I actually went last year to the Bills. Just the Bills actually lost that game. And that was pre-Aaron Rodgers. And I have strong feelings about Aaron Rodgers as a sports fan. And so I, I think it would be an emotional game for me. So I'm going to say. I don't, think that, I don't think this podcast would be complete without a brief coda on Ravi's thoughts on Aaron Rodgers. Let's just go. Well, okay. I'll just say this on the, the hard knocks. Hard knocks is only the stuff the team allows to get out. And it is some of the dumbest coaching you have ever seen in your life. Like just the most, listen, if you're listening out here, the last episode of Hard Knocks, watch it. There are at least 10 things I said. I turned to a friend of mine and I said, I'm sleeping better tonight knowing this is what they're saying to each other behind the scenes. It, it is truly some asinine stuff at the most professional levels. It, it's crazy to me that this stuff gets out there. But Jets, don't call Doug. Call somebody else, okay? <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> That's enough on the on football, or at least the American side of things. Doug, thank you very much, and we'll be uh, we'll be back with another episode next week. And make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you very much, everybody. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at, at the Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.